Welcome to Your Shelf or Mine. I'm Becky Scandal, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. And I'm Lisa Hedgepeth, Circulation Specialist at the Longview Public Library. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Becky. Um, it's your first time on. It is. So we're going to get to know you a little bit. Um, you said you're a circulation specialist. Can you tell everybody what that means? Well, that means that I am in charge of some of the odd little things that help the library run better for our patrons. Um, if you have a problem with your account or you can't figure out something that's going on in your account, I'm the person to talk to. And I fix all the little blocks that pop up on people's records. Um, if they think they have returned something, but the record still shows it's there, I'm the person they talk to to solve the, those things. And um, before we started the drive-through, I was also in charge of the holds. Um, but now, now that we're doing drive-through, you and I are kind of sharing that. So, yeah, we're just trying to make it work. That's right. We just want people to have stuff in their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, how long have you been working at the library? Well, I started part-time in July of 2003 um, and then was fortunate enough to get a full-time position in September of 2004. So grand total, a little over 17 years, 16 of which were full-time. What would you say is your favorite thing about working at the library? Helping people find a book they didn't even know they were going to love. <laughs> it, it's somewhat simple when a patron comes in and they have an idea, I want or they know, I want mm -hmm. this book. But when they come to you and say, I don't know what to read next, and you help them find a treasure, and their light face lights up because they found some awesome book, that's my favorite part. Yeah, that's good. I like that, too. Um, and what are your favorite books? Well, it's really hard for me to pick a favorite book, but I could tell you my favorite series is The Dresden Files. That's which um, Butcher? Yes, Jim Butcher. It's a sci-fi fantasy. <laughs> Good job, Becky. <laughs> sci-fi fantasy um, and a little nor. Um, actually, I'm I'm a big Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Uh, nor um, reading and movies fan. So it mixes all of those different things. It does. Someone once re referred to um, Harry Dresden, who's the main character of the Dresden Files, as the John McClane of the Wizarding World. I thought that was an apropos. <laughs> Well, that sounds fun. Yeah, I've never read any of that series, but it's it's been around a long time. I'm sure it's really popular. It has been around quite a while. There was a new a new one that's come out recently? Yes, the most recent one, uh, Battleground, just came out in September, and I actually just finished reading that uh, about a week ago. It was awesome. <laughs> good, good. Um, what else do you like? Uh, well, at the moment, I have been telling everybody about this fabulous book I'm reading by Alice Hoffman. Um, it's called Magic Lessons. Um, as a prequel to Practical yeah, Magic. Yeah, okay, that's so a practical. You know, I've only read like one of Alice Hoffman's books, and it was like a historical fiction one. But I really love the movie Practical Magic. I don't know if that's like, I don't know if that's getting into. It, I love Practical Magic. That, that's. Okay. One of my all-time favorite movies. Um, and it's not like people who really love the book don't like the movie. Sometimes that happens. I was fortunate enough. I saw the movie first. Um, and for myself, that always works out better if I mm -hmm. see the movie first and then read the book. Um, and then Alice Hoffman has come out with um, two prequels, um, which was The Rules of Magic, which is about the ants that you meet in the movie. And then the one I'm reading now, which is Magic Lessons, and that's about Maria. That's so, the original witch? The original Owens woman in the, yeah. in the Practical Magic movie, correct. Yeah, I watched that movie just a few weeks ago. I like to watch it, like, I guess it's not 
You know, like, there's something Halloween-y about it, but I like to watch it in the fall. There's one scene that that's mm-hmm. about Halloween, um, and I love that movie. I'll watch it whenever, so. Yeah. Sometimes, it's not been on Netflix for a while. I had to, like, borrow from the library. But I want to be just, like, browsing Netflix. I'm like, what should I watch? What should I watch? Maybe I'll just watch Practical Magic again. Maybe I'll just put that on for background. <laughs> I just can't go wrong. Like, Sandra Bullock, Nicole Kidman. It's, like, two of my favorite actresses. Together. Together. Um, and Diane, I have a hard time saying her last name. It's Weist, I think. Yeah. And then, of course, Stocker Channing. I mean, mm-hmm. fabulous actresses. Great movie. <laughs> you would think our podcast was about that. <laughs> <laughs> we could do one about that. <laughs> In the future. Yeah, we could talk about the movie, the book, and the two prequels. Ooh, I like this. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll make a note. <laughs> future idea. But I do also like to read a lot of uh, nonfiction. Mm-hmm. My bachelor degree um, is in history, and so the 900s are, I love to prowl around in there and see what I can find. Cool. Do you have other like favorite movies or TV shows? Let's see. I was I was a big fan of the 70s show when it was on. Um, you know, I don't have cable. So I'm I'm a go I go back and rewatch. Really, I just have them on for background noise. Mhm. Um 70s show West Wing. But I would much rather just listen to music and read most mm-hmm. evenings. Who's your favorite music? That's pretty, that's a pretty eclectic. I don't know that I could pinpoint a favorite. It's, it's definitely a mood thing. You know, mm-hmm. some, sometimes you need some Metallica or some Slipknot going on. And, and then other days I need Beyonce singing to me. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, there's a pretty wide gamut going on here. I totally understand that. And you play video games too? I do play some video games. Um, I'm, not a first person shooter though and a lot of people when you when you say you play first you play video games they they just think oh you like to play first person shooters mm-hmm. i play role playing games um you know i back in the day before the internet you know we did the whole roll the dice dnd mm-hmm. kind of thing so i like those kind of games like adventure questy exactly sword and sorcery um mm-hmm. black desert was the most recent one that i had been playing but definitely this year i've been reading a lot more it's nice escapism (laughs) yeah i've just been like the last couple of weeks really like tearing through a lot of stuff and part of it is because like i have to (laughs) i'm like a deadline for having to read all these books um but also it's really nice like yesterday i read this whole like book basically in one sitting um and it was really like engrossing and it's nice to find something where you're like oh i can sit and read that and not have my mind wander to all of these things that are stressing me out. Exactly. So today you're here to talk with me about um, a YA nonfiction book. Yes, I am. I read Blacklisted, Hollywood, the Cold War, and the First Amendment. It was it was well written. Um, it's very journalistic, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so very fact fact driven, uh, quick read. But what I found most fascinating about it, uh, with my history background, were all the little extras that they put in. Like, as an example, here's a Western Union telegram um, that they have digitally scanned and added into this book. That, I mean, it actually shows one of these people's responses to their subpoena. You know, I received a subpoena appear before your committee in Washington on October 23rd. It was just fascinating. To- to me that I could actually look at this Western Union telegram. Mm-hmm. Um, even for, you know, my generation, I knew about telegrams, but I never saw them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read um, some article. I think it was in a horn book like a couple of months ago, and they were talking about nonfiction for youth. And uh, Roger, whose last name I can't remember, is like the editor for the um, he has been writing in reviewing for this magazine for like decades. And he was talking about how he really sees like um, this trend in the last maybe like 10 years in youth nonfiction where the authors are doing like primary research for writing for like kids and teens, where before it was kind of like, you know, they would, would base that on like a, some secondary research, like some adult history book and then write it for, for kids. 
and uh, and instead they're they're doing all this research and then writing their main book is the book for young people, which. Again, given my history background, I find fascinating and I want to applaud them for doing this, um, showing the difference between initial research and primary research and secondary research, particularly for young adults, I think is very important. And this does such a great job of illustrating, you know, again, the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals Statement of Principle. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a primary document. I'm, I'm showing there. Yeah. I'm sure you, not that the, our <laughs> podcast people can see, but <laughs> which I, I also think is fascinating for young adults because it shows a distinct difference in vocabulary. I mean, even just how uh, people in the f- late 40s, early 50s put words together is so different than the way we communicate now. Yeah. Um, so which is, uh, I think, also um, an added benefit of including the primary documents. It's so formal. Mm-hmm. They take a page and a half to say, yeah, I'll be there on that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like I was just talking to something. Maybe it was you about even like in a, in a telegram where you don't have very many words that you can use. Like space is really limited. It'll still be really formal. Yeah. Um, could you give us like a summary of uh, of like what the book is about generally? I think maybe some people don't know what um, the blacklist is. Oh, sure. Um, so. This particular time period focuses on World War II, but one of the things that I knew but this book highlights is that the um, Committee Against Communist, it, it went by a couple of different names. Let me, let me get the mm-hmm. correct term that they're using here. Um, so the House of Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities. Um, this actually, it, it spanned from after World War II, or excuse me, after World War I, until the early 70s, actually. Um, but this particular book focuses on just after World War II. And 19 people who came to testify in front of this House committee, 10 of whom, before they even arrived, were termed unfriendly by the committee and the press. I mean, before they even got to Washington, D.C., they were called unfriendly. So that means they said that they were communists. Yes, they were They were accusing them of being communists or having communist ties. And, of course, it's, it's a First Amendment issue, um, which is what the book talks about. And one of the things that was talked about in depth um, in the book is the fact that as a committee from Congress – they don't have the same rules as being in court. Um, so you don't have, as a hum, as a person, just an individual, you don't have the same rights because they don't have to follow the same rules. And so you can be, you know, bad things can happen to you and you have to wait to appeal through the judicial later. Um, so, yeah, this this book talked about um, the 19 people, specifically the, the 10 unfriendlies, um, their experiences in front of the committee and what happened then. And they were unfortunately blacklisted um, and they weren't able to work under their own names. And some of them were able to get around it by working through other people here. I'm going to write this or do this, but I'm going to let you take the credit Mm -hmm. and you're going to get a percentage of the money because this is the only way I can produce work. What was interesting was how they finally broke it was it was a dub two. Well, there were a couple of things actually, as I get off, sorry, there were, there was one movie in particular that was nominated for an award and the commit the award committee had had always said nobody from the blacklist can win this award. Well, this movie happened to be written by two authors, one of whom was on the blacklist, one was not. They said, well, we can't not give this guy an award because he's not on the blacklist. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they did that, it kind of broke the gate. Uh, well, if you're going to nominate this dude, um, what movie was it? I, that's I'm I'm looking to make 
after that I tell you the correct movie. Okay. Yeah, here's another. I, as I'm looking for the for the title of the movie, I'm seeing this ad from 1961. The Reds are back in Hollywood. Americans, to save America from communist conspiracy, don't patronize Reds. And that's how they were justifying this blacklist. Ah, here we go. The Oscars. Spartacus? That's one of the ones that comes up later. So it started with, in 1954, um, Roman Holiday won an Academy Award mm-hmm. for Best Muslim Picture. And Ian McClellan Hunter was credited with writing the story, and he accepted it. But actually, Dalton Trumbo wrote it. So he let someone else accept his award. And then in 57, the brave one was nominated. And Trumbo just used a, a fake name for, to do that one. And, and they won. And the fake name was Robert Rich. And so once he won under Robert Rich, they started, the media started looking for this Robert Rich guy. Mm. It's like no one came up to accept the award. Exactly. No one came up to accept the award. And so they started looking and, and lo, Trumbo himself started a whispering campaign. <laughs> and he would never, when asked, he would not confirm or deny. And so, you know, the, so slowly but surely the blacklist started to unravel. And that was when Trumbo was the one and actor producer Kirk Douglas at that point came out and said, yeah, you know what? He wrote Spartacus. That's crazy. Like, you do think of, like, I mean, he wasn't allowed to work, but he still did anyways. But if he hadn't, then we wouldn't have all of these, like, like, I love Roman Holiday. Um, you know, these really, like, classic films. Oh, yeah. Um, Adrian Scott, he ended up writing a lot under his wife's name. And he was responsible for the show Lassie. He was responsible for the show Have Gun Will Travel. And while... Not everyone who's listening may necessarily be familiar with those television shows. <laughs> they were they were important moving forward television forward you know programs. Um, but the one that got me the most this would have been so horrible had this this person not been allowed to do this. The movie Mash and the television program, which was based on it was written by one of the 10 original blacklisted. And I want to make sure it jumps here on me. Ring Lardner Jr. And he adapted the novel MASH to into the screenplay. And the movie, of course, is what, what led to the television program, um, which was groundbreaking um, in MASH spanned so such a large time period and is actually something I think that connected many of our, you know, the boomers, the Gen Xers, and even a little bit into the millennials. Mm-hmm. It was a connection we all had, definitely during appointment TV. <laughs> <laughs> I remember MASH as being like just always on, like syndication, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, we just watched MASH. There were, there were times when you could watch really early seasons on one channel at a certain time, switch over to a different channel, you could watch later episodes, and then the current one was on whatever de- night it was, you know? Yeah, that kind of really makes you think, though, of, like, what didn't get made, mm. too. Right? What didn't get made. In addition to the the huge implication it had on the arts, you know, who are, I don't think anybody should be telling an artist what they can and cannot do. That's mm-hmm. part of what they do. Um, they relate the world in the way they see it, whether they are a painter or a writer or a director. But it really boggled my mind how people, how quickly people were willing to name names, um, because that that's how this started. The original, so they they talked about originally the 19 who were coming to testify, 10 of whom were unfriendly. Well, guess what? That means the first nine, <laughs> they were friendly. Uh huh. And that's how they came up with the list. <laughs> of who they were going to talk to. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like a, you know, you make someone, like, afraid for their, like, livelihood, and you can get them to throw other people under the bus. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just about what you thought or how you felt about a particular issue or issues. It was, you feel this way? Well, now you can't work. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Oh, which means, by the way, you can't pay your bills or feed your family or. Yeah. Yeah, because the house was really concerned about them, like, producing, like, propaganda. Is that the justification? That was the justification. It, it was, you know, movies had such a huge influence on people's lives and the way they thought, you know, and, and they were supposed to be modeling what a good American mm-hmm. um, was and did. And it's one of the things that fascinates and yet a little bit horrifies me about the post-World War II era in America is the conformity. I I'm not good at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It makes you think of like the, like the comics book code. Um, yeah. Which that, yeah, that came out of Congress. It was like a compromise that the comics book industry decided they would self-regulate so that they weren't regulated by the government, but it ended up being pretty stifling for a long time. The movie industry did the same thing too. It was the code. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so we're going to self-regulate so you don't come down here and tell us. But yes. yes, extremely stifling. And I think in a lot of ways, probably more um, like censorious than it would be if the federal government had tried to regulate it because they would be limited by like the Constitution, um, <laughs> what they could, you know, do. Well, and what but I guess the- they, they use the, the post office to kind of justify those regulations. They do. But one of the other things that's interesting is the way that they would I'm just, you know, if you didn't. And and I'm making a very large generalization, please forgive me. But there were, (laughs) you know, if everybody in town, if you weren't on church on Sunday or you weren't at this meeting, um, you know, that was American approved. Well, were you sick? You know, where were you? Because people are going to come look. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't want to go. <laughs> Had a bad day. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> but the author also, in addition to doing uh, the primary, some primary research, of course, the bibliography is fantastic. There are some great websites that, if you're interested in, you know, more information on the blacklist or the, other, the one I particularly liked was the guide to house records. So if you want to go look at um, information about Nazis and other propaganda during this period of time in the national archives, it gives you an actual web address. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm familiar with most of these sites, but again, my background's in history. Yeah. And I forget sometimes people don't know that you can look at the National Archives online. Yeah. I read um, a comic book earlier this year about, like, women astronauts. So they um, did, a lo- like, based a lot of that book off of um, interviews, all these recorded interviews. And, like, anybody can actually go on, like, the NASA website and listen to them. Isn't that um, neat? <laughs> yeah. And it's it's really cool as, like... Um, time passes and like more of this stuff just becomes like available to the public. Um, you can, yeah, you can just go and look at it or listen to it. And particularly as we are losing, um, a lot of the generation that was there during the Gemini and Apollo, listening to how they felt about it is amazing. Yeah. In the book that I read, so I read, um, this is called Jane Against the World, Roe v. Wade and the Fight for Reproductive Rights by Karen Blumenthal, and she, this has lots of really nice back matter, too. But in her author's note, she talks about she had a hard time getting court documents from Texas where um, the Roe Roe v. Wade, like, original case was. Uh And she had filed, um, so she requested the Roe case files from the Texas State Library, and they couldn't find them. So um, they referred her to the state attorney general's office, and um, she got, like, copies of microfilm of the files, but it was just kind of, like, too much to go through. So she requested, um, like, digital copies through the Texas Open Records request system, and um, they would release some of them but held back quite a few. And so what she ended up doing was she paid out of her own pocket to digitize 
the microfilm that this other person had loaned her. And then she sent copies of that to like Dallas public library and some law school libraries in Texas so that they were more copies. But so it's like in the process of doing the research for this book, she personally made these like primary sources available to other people. Wow. Yeah. Cause it had been lost in the state archive, which is like kind of crazy. That is crazy. Mm-hmm. And yay. Kudos for this author. Yeah. It's interesting too. She talks like, cause there's like an author's note and like acknowledgements and extensive bibliography and like, notes for every chapter and, you know, an index. This is a really well done book. But a lot of times in youth publishing, maybe an adult too, but like the publisher will come to the author and say like, we're approaching like for Roe v. Wade, there's like an anniversary or it's like in the news and we want like a book for young people about this. Will you write this book? And that's kind of how it comes comes together is that it's like the publisher sees a need and then ask somebody to write it for them. Yeah. And so that's how this came about. And so she talks about how she started. And this is what I expected, too, was that the book would really just focus on Roe v. Wade, that case. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she had thought so, too. And then when she started doing research, she was like, I need to tell, like, way more of this story. And so she starts talking about just in general, like, the history of, like, reproductive rights in the United States. So, um, like, access to birth control and, like, the laws that made birth control, like, illegal. Um, she talks about, like, Comstock laws. And um, I'm putting this whole book on hold as we're talking. Yeah, and it's P.T. Barnum was, a, like, a legislator in, like, Connecticut or something. Uh-huh. And he, he, uh, he was really, like, against contraceptives and made some bizarre law that people had to spend a lot of time, like, trying to undo. Um so uh, she starts, like, before that, because when birth control was illegal, actually, like, a lot of people weren't really concerned about abortion. And then they kind of, like, switched a bit. The, right. Um, laws and, and politics around birth control and abortion. Um, and and I think she does a really good job of staying, like, fairly, like, straightforward and kind of neutral. Um, one of the things I also really like about this book is that, like, a lot of times in um, – Nonfiction for young people, like, they'll have, like, really good sidebars of, like, you know, side stories or information, but that are inserted, like, kind of awkward places in the text. True. Um, but this does, like, a sidebar type of thing for every paragraph, but it always sticks it, like, at the end of the chapter or in a place where it doesn't, like, break up the rest of your reading. And that's just, like, okay. an organizational detail where I'm like, that's really good. That's a really good job. And it does have, like, lots of, they're all in black and white, but lots of, like, photographs. And Well, I agree. It's very, very disconcerting when, particularly, a lot of people struggle with reading nonfiction anyway. And if you mm-hmm. disrupt the storyline, to yeah. fact. Yeah, or, like, this, you know, timeline. It's like, this is really important, but, like, I don't want to break up this paragraph I'm reading to read this other thing. So, like, that's a design thing that I really appreciate. Um and it does talk about, I think it's really interesting because she does, she talks about like, um, she gives like a lot of contexts for everything and, um, and kind of like what you were saying about the idea of just like creating a law like in Congress or in like the state legislature and then just like seeing if it's, how it's going to play out, if it's constitutional or not. And, um, like the moment they decided because they spent like, you know, decades working like state, state to state to make, you know, like, different things legal or available, and it was really slow going. Um, And they decided that a more, like, a broader and more, like, long-lasting method to actually, like, change laws around contraceptives and abortion would, would be to take these, to challenge the laws themselves in court. And so, like, the process of, like, choosing um, the cases and finding, like, the right, people to file them and like the right attorneys to argue it. And another really interesting thing is like most of the people doing this work were like under 30, like in their twenties. Yeah. That's kind of interesting though, because it makes you wonder, were they, I mean, as we're well aware, this is a volatile issue. And Mm -hmm. so being under 30, they're, they're less established in their own primary careers. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, they probably haven't started their families necessarily yet. So it gives them, a little more free time on one for one thing. Mm-hmm. And 
not that they don't have valuable things to lose, but there are less targets if there are repercussions to their work. Yeah. And I think, too, if you're looking at something where it's like this is potentially going to take, you know, 20 years in the courts to, you know, like. To work its way through. Yeah. Then, like, you need someone young to start so you can, like, see it all through. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, also a valid point. You're right. It, it is not a fast process to move through the court system to actually get your case to even be considered by the Supreme Court. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, too, because like the woman who argued uh, Roe in front of the Supreme Court and she ended up having to do it twice because they originally argued it when there was just seven people on the court and they decided they thought it was going to be like a really quick thing like this law the state law is garbage or it's not. And they decided that they'd have to think about it a lot more and like actually have a decision that provided the states with like more information about what their laws would have to require to be constitutional. Um, and that uh, they would wait until two new justices were appointed to the court because two of the justices had like resigned and then died really quickly, like one after the other at that time. And so she had done it, and then she had to come back, like, a year later and do it again. Anyways, but this attorney, she was young, like, in her late 20s. And after after her initial argument, she decided to run for Texas state legislature. And so when she came back to the Supreme Court, she was, like, campaigning, too, at the same time. And then they took, I don't know, several months to release their decision. Decision. Thank you. Um and by that time, she had, like, won her election, and she was working on legislation to, like, change um, the abortion laws in Texas. Wow. And then it turned out she didn't, like, she could just throw that away. She didn't after have to. After the decision came out. Yeah. So it's really interesting, like, and it came, like, how how this issue, like, shaped people's careers and how they found different, like, um, allies in places where they didn't expect them to because of their own kind of, like, personal experiences or experience of loved ones that really um, shaped their views on the issue. So, yeah, it was really a fascinating book. I have it on hold, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be returning it today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when it comes out of quarantine, I think I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd did recommend you, it. You read a second book as well? I did read a second book. Um, the other book I read is called sure. Ordinary Hazards, a memoir. And this is by Nikki Grimes, and she's, like, a really well-known poet who writes for young people. She does, like, like a lot of verse novels. I think probably her um, most famous book is called Bronx Masquerade. You heard about that? Oh, okay. Um, but it sounded familiar, but I couldn't mm-hmm. click why. Yeah, so this one came out in 2018, and it won a Prince Honor last year, which is for writing for teens. And it's really – I had I, about this at some like um, like online conferences and she was really talking about she had like a really really tough childhood and that's like the book just focuses on that um, but she has all these gaps in her memory like losses based because of like the trauma that she went to where there's like periods of her youth that she can't really remember or or she was remembering like as she was writing them and she she talks a lot like if you watch her interviews talking about this book I think I like that maybe even better than the book um, where she talks about like the nature of memory and like of reliving trauma through writing about it. And um, that there's just like so many things like at her age now she can't check or verify with other people because a lot of those people have passed. And she has a couple of poems in, in the memoir too, that are talking about like the nature of memory and if this was real or not, which I think is really compelling. But she uh, her mother was a paranoid schiz- had paranoid schizophrenia and was like kind of like in and out of hospitals throughout her youth. And it kind of ended up being a thing where like as a young teenager, she would have to like call and have her um, like committed basically multiple oh. times because she was she just was really, really ill. And um, but like the first five years of her life. Um, she had a sister who was five years older than her and they, um, their parents split up and she ended up having like later, like a really nice relationship with her father. But when they were really young, he was kind of like not in the picture. And, um, 
her mom would kind of just like try to find a place to leave them with while she went to work. And they had this one babysitter who would just like lock them in the closet all day. Oh my goodness. And leave them there. And when they tried to tell their mom, she didn't like believe them. So she talks about that. And like that had a real big effect on her, like throughout her life. It's like a, she was like afraid of the dark and like claustrophobic and stuff. And, um, her, she and her sister were eventually put into foster care and they got to stay together for a little while. And then they got split up. And Nikki got to stay with this family who, like, was really loving and supportive, and she stayed with them for, like, five years. And I think is still really close to, like, her um, brothers uh, from that foster family. And then her mom got remarried and was, like, well for a period, and so she went and moved back with her mom. Um, but then the man that she married was, like, abusive to her. And um, her sister very briefly, like, moved back in with them. And then left, and she didn't know why for a long time. And then when he abused her, she was like, oh, this is probably why. And um, he eventually left, and then she was trying to take care of her mom. And then she started having this, like, nice relationship with her father, and he was a violinist. And was really um, – they lived in, in New York, and he um, had a lot of connections to kind of, like, the black artist scene in Harlem and would introduce her to, like, these places and people and, like, take her to, like – uh, events and really kind of like opened her eyes to like the possibilities of what she could do with like her writing. Cause she was just like jur- journaling and stuff. And she also had this teacher in middle school or high school who was her English teacher, who was a Holocaust survivor, oh. um, who really pushed her to like be, become a better writer. And, um, she, she talks about how she could really like believe her teacher that she could like, work past all these terrible things that had happened to her because she saw that her teacher had done that. Um, and so that was like really powerful for her too. And then her father got in a car accident and died when she was like 15. Oh no. Yeah. So it's just like, Oh, just all this devastating stuff. But she talks a lot to you about like her faith and, and how that has affected her life and got her through. And then um, there's a section where her father takes her to this like, fancy party and um she sees this like man who everybody just like kind of flocks to you and they want to talk to him and she kind of describes him in the text and i was like that sounds like james baldwin like just the way she describes how he looks like and and then um she's like dad who's that he's like oh he's a really famous author writer and then like later she like confirms that it was him when she like learns who he was and like reads one of his books and, like, the last poem of the book is talking about she was at this um, event. It was, like, a memorial event about Malcolm X. And I think it was, like, a couple of years after he died that they were holding at some school in Harlem. And he, James Baldwin, was there and he spoke. And when he was leaving, she kind of, like, ran after him and was like, will you, like, I'm a writer, too. Will you read some things I've written? And he stopped and took the time to, like, read her teenage notebook and then gave her his phone number and was like, oh, call me and we'll talk. And he like mentored her for like two years until he like moved back to Europe. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, like what a way to end the story on that, like that piece of positivity, positivity and hope and connection. Yeah. It was really amazing. And then I was like, get my phone out and I'm like, you know, Nikki Grimes, James <laughs> Baldwin, and she t- tells that story other places too. But it's really incredible. That, yeah. That's amazing. Mm hmm. And, like, totally changed her life. And then through that, you know, as her, she's had, like, a long career at writing for young people and, like, the the young lives she's been able to touch with her writing. It's just nice to see that chain. Uh, yeah, the continuation mm-hmm. and, and and the hope that, you know, not just one of the people that she's helping, but maybe even two are going to continue that tradition. Yeah, that maybe they have a story about when they met her. Yeah. That's amazing. Being in the arts is is very difficult. Um, you know, there is uh, a you know nothing is sure, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but there, I think that you and I enjoy a, a security of a paycheck that um, you know uh, authors and and other artists don't. Um, mm-hmm. If they are you know supporting themselves by their work, that's that's a pretty scary. You know, they're not getting paid every fifth in the twentieth. Yeah. You know. <laughs> 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 yeah, it can be pretty, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're both making these faces. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so the, the writing in here is like, they're all poems and she does it on different 
like topics and it's not like she she talks in her author's note about how she tries to be chronological but she doesn't necessarily like remember things that way memory doesn't always work that way so (laughs) um so she kind of tries to piece it together but she's just kind of like doing the best she can there's like little sections um that she has in here that like this says notebook and then they're writings that seem like they're coming from like like a childhood journal or childhood notebook because she kept a lot of these when she was young um but in the author's note she talks about how she she just wrote those when she was writing the book because she wanted something to kind of approximate that type of writing she was doing when she was young but kind of like the last final straw thing that made her move out of the house she was living in with her mother at the apartment when she was a teenager was that her mom went through an episode and threw away all her journals and notebooks. Oh. So she was like, well, that's the final straw. I'm going to go live with my sister. Yeah. That was, you know, I think yeah. obviously you, I don't know her personally, but from what you're telling me, it's like, wow, you know, I can put up with a lot. You can lock me in a closet and I'm going to survive and we're going to get through this. But you start throwing away my notebooks and my mm-hmm. journals. Now we have a problem. Yeah. That's just so devastating. Like, even, like, in the thing, she's, like, you know, she goes, she goes to talk to her mom, and her mom's, like, having an episode, and she's, like, I threw away all that clutter. And so she's, like, looking in, like, the garbage is in her home, and then she's, like, out in the street, like, looking through, and is, like, please have this be, like, the day that the garbage didn't come on time, and they were gone. And so I'm, like, reading that, like, full of suspense. I'm, like, and then she found them all, right? Right? Right, right. It's like when Amy burns Joe's manuscript. Anyways, I really love those stories where someone, like, you know, ruins someone's writing. It's so sad. It is. It's just so horrifying. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I really liked this book. It's um, it's sad. It's sad. But, like, it ultimately, like, I, yeah. Well, and it sounds like it's so well written mm-hmm. that, and she's portraying this isn't how it ended. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, you know, just like the teacher inspired her. She's trying to inspire, you know, mm-hmm. not just young adults. Those of those of us who are <clears throat> adults reading it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think too, like Bronx Masquerade, um, and I think she's written another one more recently that I haven't read. Um, but those books are about like teachers inspiring their students, like that are going through really rough situations, like with literature and poetry. Um, so you can see like kind of this thread through her writing something that's really important to her and it's i i love that she's giving kudos to you know the teachers that um, have inspired her and and helped her along and um, they may not have been the only thing but they certainly help and you know teachers and and librarians we we are probably the unsung heroes (laughs) of, of keeping kids moving you know in a positive direction we're we're here to help them and to help show them their potential Yeah, I was reading a book the other day, and actually I think it was this book about, like, consent and puberty. (laughs) Um, But at the end, it was like, find an adult that you can, like, talk to and will help you, like a sibling or a parent or a teacher or a librarian. Oh, they included us. It is, you know, something that, that we have in common with, with teachers is that we genuinely want to help people where they're at in their life and to help them go wherever it is they want to go. We get to, you know, we get to have the advantage of not being a sibling or a parent or a relation who has a preconceived notion of where anybody should be going. You tell me where it is you want to go. I'm going to help you get there. Yeah, and I think she being, like, in a public library gives us, like, a nice situation where we're, like, in, like, a place that a young person likes to come back to throughout their lives. It's not like, you know, I think the teacher relationship can be, like, really, really important, but it's harder as you get older to, like, go back and see, like, a, a teacher you had when you were younger because you're in a different building or... Oh, sure. Um, and, you know, teachers go through, you know, however many students they get in their class every year. Um, and while it's nice to go back to your first grade teacher or your fifth grade teacher, say, hey, this is where I am in my life. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
you know, they appreciate that. And of course, I'm not saying teachers aren't going to help them if they have that connection. Mm -hmm. But when you come back five years later in the library, probably you've been coming to see us all along anyway. Right. It's kind of nice to have that continuation of a, of a relationship that's not broken up by like school years necessarily. School years, grade level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, while you are the youth services librarian, I think that's your official title. <laughs> um, you don't limit yourself to just helping the youth that walk right. in that building. Um, and there's lots of people on staff too who have like, you know, like the longer term relationships with patrons who oh. don't like specifically work in youth services, but, you know, yeah. they're, they're like a person in the community. To, those kinds of relationships, even even when they seem kind of casual, can be really important and impactful for young people. I, know. I agree. And, and I think sometimes that's something that uh, we don't necessarily remember um, the impact that we can have in young people's lives um, in just being open to, hi, how are you? Mm-hmm. How are you today? You know, what's going on in your life? Oh, you needed something to read. You were looking for something to watch. You needed some information on how to get to school to further your education. We have want to uh, play Roblox on the computer. Exactly. You need, you know, you need help. Oh, oh boy, that computer's being obnoxious. Let's, <laughs> let's see if we can help. You know, let's see if we can get past that. Yeah, yeah I had uh, a few years ago, like this one person who was always in the library that I worked at, and. Um, I was like, I can really see this kid as being like the kind of kid who comes back in like 10 years. And it's like, I was such a little brat. Thank you so much for, you know, still welcoming me and stuff. Because <laughs> like, you, I hear stories like that where it's like, oh, we thought this kid like hated us. And then he came back later and was like, you were, you know, like made a big impression on me just for being like decent to me every day. Yeah. You made me follow the rules, but you were nice. Yeah. And you and we, you know, you always let me come back and try again. I have been I've been here long enough um, that you do you start to hear those stories. And you know, thank you for just being a place I could come after school. Yeah. You know, there was um the story I think it was on like This American Life and a friend of mine had sent it to me and it was called Room of Requirement and it was like a couple of little stories about the library. And one of them that was like really moving was this, uh, librarian and she was talking about homeless youth who come to the library, like spend all day there, spend the day there, they don't like have anywhere else to go. And like as she's talking about it, she had this like realization that that was her situation when she was young and she'd never thought of it that way, but she and her family had kind of been like couch surfing and staying with friends. And so during the day, she would just spend that day at the library. And she, like, it wasn't until, like, way later that she made this connection that I, and, like, reconnected with the librarian who was, like, helpful to her in the situation. And that woman was, like, I don't know. It was just, like, really sweet. She's, like, talking about it, and she has this realization and starts crying. Um, and she's, like, maybe that's why I pursued this career. Didn't even, like, realize at the time. Anyways, you should listen to it. <laughs> well, and, well, and as you were saying that, I, I think that, you know, I, I know you have some fabulous memories of going to the library and, and talking with librarians when you were young. Um, and there's one in, one time period in particular in my life when I was um, in the fifth grade that I was struggling with bullies. Um, I had changed schools. Um, I didn't hadn't made friends yet. And the librarian, although we didn't interact a lot, she just she let me come and hang out in the library, mm-hmm. you know, and. Bullies weren't following me in there, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, it was it was my safe haven. And I, I think that a lot of people have those kinds of stories, which, you know, makes us feel good about what we yeah. do. <laughs> there is a, a section in Ordinary Hazards where she talks about her dad taking her to the library and getting her library card. And she has this, like, really short poem that's, like, three or four lines about, like, what it meant to her to – oh, here it is. I just – Opened right to the page. Well, of course. <laughs> it's on page 137, and it's called Library Card. A magic pass I used to climb into other people's skin any old time I needed. And she, yeah, she, she, for a while, they lived in a neighborhood where there was, like, like a bunch of 
gangs, like one on every street, and they would kind of harass her to like join join them. And she talks about this one time where she was like trying to be tough and like tell them to leave her alone, and then ended up actually nice to them. And so they burned her calf with a cigarette, like really bad. And she just yeah, like because she was waiting for the bus and it was running a little bit late. <sighs> and there yeah, they made fun of her for, you know, saying trying to you know. Talking smart or whatever. I don't know. Oh, yes. You had an extensive vocabulary, so therefore you must have thought you were better than they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, she talks, too, about how sometimes, like, memories like that push out the others that would have been better. Like, she can't remember, like, a lot of friends she had when she was, like, you know, like in middle school. Though she knows that she had friends, she can't remember, like, their names or some nicer stories because she is going through all of this traumatic stuff. Yeah, that's it. It's interesting the way memory works and in, in that it would not necessarily hold on to those small good pieces. It's kind of sad too, but I love, I love that she called the library card her magic pass. We should, you know, we're going to rebrand. We're going to start <laughs> magic pass. <laughs> Here's your pass. Here's your magic pass to any world. (laughs) Yeah, so those are the books I read. They're they're both were really well done. I was gonna say they both sound really good. I know for certain. I'm definitely gonna want to read the 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 Jane one. Like I said, I already put that one on hold. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting too. I think sometimes people think of like um like youth nonfiction as being you know like the kind of like series books that publishers put out to help kids do homework. And not that those can't be really well done and really good, but there is like a lot of um, like creative nonfiction being done writing for young people too. Um, yeah, I I agree, um, and I am I am pleased uh, not just as a librarian, but also just as a someone who enjoys reading nonfiction. Um, it it's a matter of how it's written and how it's presented because if you know the topic is interesting, a well written book. Um, you know, knowledge is power. So well-written nonfiction young adult books are, are fabulous because it kind of helps them get into the habit of reading. And I think there's something, too, about like a memoir that's written for an audience, like a teen audience, that really shows shows them that like this is a really like important and valid part of your life. Like you're going to be in your 70s and this is still going to be a really formative part of your life for you and like what you're experiencing right now is important. What you're experiencing and the decisions you're making and the responses you're having to your experiences are all really important. And yeah, I don't know about you, but you know, my parents were definitely trying to tell me those things when I was a teenager, but I don't know that they were resonating with me in the way they should have. Whereas literature that's written for them helps reach more. I agree, but um, I, I would also agree definitely in my lifetime, and I'm imagining even in yours, that young adult writing has just improved vastly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think even in the last, like, two years, it's just been, uh, it's really, like, exploded, I think. It's gotten, like, more diverse, like, the push for diversity has really made the field better and um and definitely broader there's like really exciting things happening in like graphic novels graphic fiction and nonfiction, and yeah it's 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 exciting i think well and i think another thing i think about a lot is like cover art has gotten so good (laughs) oh cover art has come so far yeah Um, it's like we don't need those same stock image legs on every sarah dessen book cover because there's like artists you know actually making like designs that are really good i'm not supposed to be able to tell it's a sarah Dessen book <laughs> because it's got those legs on it <laughs> oh yeah there's a period in the early 2000s where it's like every um it's not just the teen books too but like all of like the like uh chiclet oh it's like legs everywhere oh yes it's like there was one book uh um did you ever read sloppy first I didn't, but my daughter did. <laughs> yeah, so I loved that book when I finally read it. 
but I didn't read it for years and years because of the dumb legs on the cover. Oh, I was like, this funny. seems like stupid and unsubstantial, and it's about this teenager who's just like incredibly like, uh, like you know, self-conscious and sarcastic. And I was like, oh, I think I read it when I was in college, and it was a thing where I was like, I should have read this when I was in high school. <laughs> then. See, that's so funny. Even librarians, we judge books by their cover. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to say about the graphic novels that, that you were pointing out, how well they've come, I like that they're doing nonfiction in graphic novels. As someone who had my oldest, my son, is he was a very reluctant reader to begin with um, until we clicked on uh, graphic novels. So if I would have had nonfiction graphic novels to offer to him, that would have even been a bigger bonus to me. Did you read that Kent State? I, I have not, but I'm going to. It's on my read list. It's really good. I like that Durf Book Durf wrote, um, my friend Dahmer. Go. Good. Um, his art is really like unique. Um, and I think, mm, I think some people might like look at it and be like, oh, this doesn't seem like it's for me. But his, he's so, it's so good. Like his like ability to just like find like the characters and just like kind of follow them through like in Kent State, what he does is, he he focuses from the beginning on uh, the students who were killed and like really makes them like full characters. And so by the time you get to like the end of the weekend, um, when like shots are fired, it's just like devastating. It's so oh, awesome. yeah, I definitely am going to have to read that in like during the summer when it's very sunny outside. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I recommend like that's that's a really good and that that's not. I mean, I think there's a lot that teens will get out of that book, but it's it's more for an adult audience, I think. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's shelved. Um, yeah, it is. Um, but it well, just like the the book I read for for our mm-hmm. podcast, um, it, it's about a period in time where not everybody was agreeing with the direction our country was going and the decisions that were being made by politicians, and. Of course, the people who were attending school at Kent State, that they were very much being affected. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I imagine it's a very powerful book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Definitely have to put that on my list. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I think sometimes, too, well, and it can be, like, really uh, frustrating and kind of infuriating to read, like, a book that's, like, this is what was happening 60 years ago, and you see that it's, like, still happening now. But I think it can also be, like, a little bit, like, I don't know what the word I want. You know, like, a sense that, like, people have done this before and dealt with it before so we can, like, do it again. Like, that. I think there is, like, in the sense, like, right now that what we are going through is just, like, so, uh, like, unprecedented and tumultuous. And it is, like, in a lot of ways. But also, like, kind of part of reading history is kind of seeing – Reading like survival stories and knowing that like you can you can work to make things better like people have in the past. You can and and I think it's also important to in reading history that this isn't the first time there has been the mandates to wear masks and um, avoid other people. Um, you know whether you agree or disagree, it's not unprecedented. It has has happened before what's unprecedented is that we have the internet and i can reach out and talk to you about it right now uh-huh. yeah that's what's different um and and in reading history um you learn uh we're not the first ones who have gone through this and you learn wow look what they, they did that we should probably not do that mm-hmm. <laughs> See, that was bad yeah there's lessons to be learned and kind of like examples of resilience to take away too. Yeah, an example, you know, good and bad examples of how people dealt with things and, you know, um I was going to say you you know whether they bought out all of the, you know, paper towels, but I don't think they had paper <laughs> towels the last time we did this. <laughs> I know we're so lucky that we have toilet paper to buy. That's right. See? <laughs> we now have this option. <laughs> I was uh, looking at an ad from the time period that the blacklisted book was on and it, they were showing baby diapers which they didn't have disposables mm-hmm. no <laughs> you know so you had the safety pins you had the cloth that 
diapers and, and of course the plastic pants. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even now, like you, the, the reusable cloth diapers that you can buy now are just like miles above, like. <laughs> oh yeah. They're like cut in the right design. You don't have to fold them. <laughs> right. They're like Velcro-y or, you know, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Snaps. You know, and if we're feeling that way, imagine how, like, our grandmas are feeling. I don't even change diapers. And I'm like, that's great. <laughs> that is awesome. Who came up with that? But that that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any final thoughts about your books or my books or books in general? Books are awesome. Mm-hmm. Read more. <laughs> yeah. Use library drive-thru. Yes, use the library drive-thru. We are very friendly. Yeah. And if you're like, oh, maybe I should check out some teen uh, nonfiction books, you can just fill out a sample request and just say you want five of them, and I'll pick them out for you, and you can just see what it's like. Yeah. And, you know, particularly if there's something you don't like, Becky will pick you things, mm-hmm. everything but that. Or... Yeah, and there's, like, when I was choosing which books to read, and I ended up picking two, but... <laughs> But I was like, there's like a new, um, I think it's Candace Fleming. There's also like kind of big names in writing, like YA nonfiction too. And she's one of them. Um, but a, a new biography about Charles Lindbergh that I was like, this looks really good, but I'm going to pick this other book instead. There's, yeah, so it was kind of hard to choose just one that I wanted to read. I agree. When I was looking, there were a couple that I was like, okay, I, first I had to narrow it down to the top five picks and then. <laughs> And then it was, okay, what's in of these lists? And there, there's a lot of good ones to choose from, from a, in a variety of topics. Yeah. And, you know, you were mentioning um, about memoirs. And one of the things I like about memoirs, um, if you, as a history person, as you're reading it and you hit this person's, this, this happened to this person at, when they were this age. Mm-hmm. And what year was it? It can be fascinating to see what else was going on in the world during that period of time you know what an influence a lot of people for myself in growing up in the 70s the gas shortage that had a huge impact on our childhood yeah and sometimes it's like like she's writing her memories from her childhood one of the things that she really remembered um nikki grimes was the assassination of malcolm x and she writes about that and she would have been 13 14 yeah that's it obviously had a huge impact on her. Yeah. Whether it was anybody else in her family did or not, yeah. it did on her. Yeah. Those, like, kind of things that you remember. Oh, and she talks about um, when JFK was assassinated, she really remembered that, too, and her mom crying. Yeah, so I like those those moments where you can see, like, kind of a big historical event happen, like, in the, the smaller effects it has, like, on a... Or bigger, you know, but like on well, a yeah. single person. Um, yeah, <laughs> and and the world they operate in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really interesting the way that all connects. Um, you know, and depending on what city they were living in or what town, if mm-hmm. that impacted that. I'm I'm fascinated, and I'm sure I will come across one um, that a memoir of someone who was living in L.A. when the Rodney King verdict mm-hmm. was announced. Yeah, there's a new, uh, new teen. This is a novel um, about that time, and I think I think it's called The Black Kids, and it's about L.A. during Rodney King. Right, Ned. Yeah. <laughs> I have such vivid memories of that. You know, 24/7 news wasn't brand new, but it was newer when that happened. Yeah, that was kind of like one of the first. Um, yeah. First 24-hour news cycle events. Exactly. Uh, yeah, this is, that is, it's called The Black Kids. It's by Christina Hammonds-Reed. And actually, so we're going to be doing um, a winter reading program in January, during the month of January. And it's a it's a program through Beanstack that um, is, like, um, like Beanstack is, like, the core, like, sponsor of this whole program, and they're doing it in conjunction with, um, Simon and Schuster's program called Books Like Us. Ooh. And, um, you can compete against other libraries and win prizes. And one of the prizes, um, is like author's visit and they'd be like virtual author visit, author visits this year. But Christina Hammonds-Reed is one of those authors. I'm pretty sure. 
Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we'll have information about uh, winter reading, and we're doing it all ages this year, um, so like birth through adult, and uh, it's, so it's going to be different than Fired Up, but I think it will be pretty pretty fun. And I like that opportunity for like the library to win a prize collectively um, is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Definitely be getting more info out about that. And, yeah, you'll be able to pre-register in a um, in a couple of weeks. I'll be watching my email. <laughs> yeah, we're going to set, like, um, a community goal for how many books we want to read during the month of January. And uh, I think that'll be cool. Oh, yay. <laughs> we're trying to decide on, like, finisher's prizes. So if you have any ideas, Lisa. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> Coffee's always good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Coffee is always good, but not if you're, like, two. That- <laughs> well, we might think it's okay, but their parent may not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and, and talking to me about with me about books today. Well, thanks for having me, Becky. I had fun. Yeah, me too. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been your shelf. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Lisa. Bye. Bye. Studio time for Your Shelf or Mine is donated by KLOG, Cook and Country, and 101.5 The Wave. We at the Longview Public Library thank our local stations for their ongoing support. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McEldry from A Song for You. Find Megan on Facebook or Twitter at Meg McEldry or online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McEldry. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McEldry. Spartacus?